If you're new here with us, uh, we, we usually read from the Bible, uh, examine the Bible, because we believe the Bible isn't just a book. Uh, the Bible is actually the words of God to the people of the world. It's, it's words about who God is, and it's words about who we are. And we think that's just the most helpful thing that we can do, is to devote our attention to, to the Bible. Now, you may not believe that the Bible is actually the Word of God. Uh, you may not be totally sure about whether it is actually from God to all the people of the world. But the thing that is unmistakable, undeniable about the Bible is that it has a huge influence on our culture. That, that it is consistently uh, the top-selling book, the, the, the most widely read book of all the books in, in all of human history. Uh, in, in 2012, uh, there's a freelance writer named James Chapman who decided to do a comparison between the sales statistics from all the most popular books uh, for the last 50 years. And so there's someone else named Jared Fanning who did an infographic, because that's the best way to learn now. So here's an infographic of all of the most popular books. You'll notice the Bible on the, the your left, which more than doubles the, the second most popular book. So the Bible from the years 1962 to 2012 sold 3.9 billion copies. Uh, the next Runner-up was quotations from Mao Zedong, which was 820 million copies. And, of course, the next one is Harry Potter, which sold 400 million copies, which is pretty good. The Bible's been around for thousands of years. Harry Potter, I don't know how many decades. That's a lot of books sold. But clearly, the Bible uh, still maintains uh, an influence. It, it's, a, it's a book that is most widely read and most widely quoted. And we have to wonder Why? Like, why is it that even in an age when religious affiliation and devotion is going down, but the Bible still, uh, still is so highly read and sought after? Well, of course, there's many reasons. I mean, for one thing, it's just been around for a long time. It's also a great book of literature, a great book of history. It has huge spiritual significance, of course, for those who follow Jesus. But even again, if you don't, if you don't really aren't sure that this is from God himself, the thing that is unmistakable about the Bible is the wisdom that is contained within it. That in the Bible, we find amazing insight into the nature of what it means to be a human being, the problems that we experience, and the hope and joy that we can find. So what I thought we'd do this morning is to uh, look at one line, actually one half verse of the Bible, to see the wisdom that God has for us in it, both as individuals and as a society. Uh, normally, for us as a church, we tend to go through books of the Bible, like bit by bit, and we're going to do that again starting next week. We're going to uh, go through the book of First Timothy this fall, which is a book uh, with wisdom for the church, which is great for us. We're a young church, and so we're going to do that starting in chapter 1 and going all the way through. But for, day, uh, for today, we're going to zero in on this one line, and uh, a little setup before we get to the line. Uh, it's from Genesis 2. Uh, this is the, the part in human history and in biblical, the biblical narrative where God is creating everything. God's creating sunflowers and aardvarks and solar systems and, and everything, not in that order. He's also creating people. The pinnacle of God's creation we see is that God created human beings. The first human being was a man named Adam. And the interesting thing that we see is right after God creates this human being and puts him in this beautiful setting, garden, perfect place, is that he says something which is kind of surprising. That's what we're going to look at. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's the verse. Now, if this was a sermon on marriage, we would do the whole verse. 
Because there's a lot of insight there in terms of the net dynamic between husband and wife, intimacy and, and connection. But we want to go even deeper uh, to look at an essential truth for all of humanity, whether you're married or not. And so we're going to look at just the first part of the verse in which God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Those 10 words uh, give great insight into a deeply felt need that we all have as human beings. It's a need for uh, community, need for connection, need for deep lasting relationship, it's, it's a need for belonging, that we would have a sense that we really, we really belong. And notice, it's not just for Adam back then. It's not just true of him that it was not good that he would be alone. It's not just true of like single guys that they should get married. It's true for all people of all time. It's not good for us to be alone. In some way, somehow, we, we all have a need to belong. And so that's what we're going to look at the sense of belonging and how it is that God identifies that need, identifies the, the things that are keeping us from it and points a way forward so that we might experience true and lasting relationship. So we're going to have three parts because it's a sermon. Three points. Uh, number one, the longing to belong. Number two, belonging that disappoints. And number three, belonging that satisfies. So we'll begin with the longing to belong. And uh, I'd just like to say it again that I find it quite incredible that this verse, Genesis 2.18, written thousands of years ago, uh, still, still seems very fresh, doesn't it? I mean, I know the wording is kind of archaic, but the sentiment behind it does not feel stale. The sense that it's, it's not good for us to be alone. That's something that you could imagine a sociologist or a psychologist writing any day of the week and giving to us as wisdom for our lives. The other reason it doesn't feel stale is that loneliness itself uh, has not diminished. In fact, in our day, there's a good case to be made that it is growing. Uh, there's an article published in the Vancouver Sun just uh, in August uh, by Sharon Kirkey, and the title of the article is this, Has Loneliness Become a Truly Modern Epidemic? She writes that people are reporting higher levels of persistent loneliness, and she gives a few stats from kind of all over the world. Uh, for example, Canadians, in a recent survey... Uh, over half of Canadians report feeling sometimes or often alone. Uh, an Angus Reid survey in the U.S. Uh, found that a number, the number of Americans who feel they have no one to talk to has tripled since 1985. Uh, in Britain, six out of ten people say that their closest companion is their pet, which uh, the queen has her corgis. I'm thinking maybe they're following her, uh, her way in life, but actually I think it's just that you know, their pets are the ones that are there with them. They're the ones that they connect to and, and relate to. In Japan, there's been a sharp increase of elderly uh, people dying alone. Now, so much so that they've, they have a word now that they've coined. It's called uh, korokushi, which means a lonely death. These are uh, elderly people who are found in their apartments usually. They've had no connection with people for a long time. It's usually their landlord is looking for, for lost rent. And they realize that this person has died and they're... they're there no longer was anyone that really knew them. There's a, uh, a brain laboratory, is what it's called, which I think is a pretty great kind of laboratory, a brain laboratory in the University of Chicago. And one of the things they study is uh, trying to measure and diagnose loneliness within the, the population. And so they have a series of questions they would ask the people that they're studying, and, and here are the questions. They would ask them, how often do you feel you have no one you can turn to? How often do you feel that your relationships seem superficial or forced? How often do you feel isolated or no longer close to anyone? 
And what they find is that over the past few years, more and more people are answering those questions with the, the checking the box that says almost always. More and more people are saying, I almost always feel somewhat isolated. I almost always feel that I have no one to, to turn to. I almost always feel alone. And, and these statistics, these, these stories are not really new. I mean, we know, we've seen through literature and writing for, for generations that human beings, we have trouble really connecting with each other. Uh, Sylvia Plath is a poet. You might uh, know her name. Uh, this is something that uh, it was found in her journal, written over 40 years ago. Uh, she writes, God, but life is loneliness. Despite all the opiates, despite the shrill, tinsel gaiety of parties with no purpose, despite the false, grinning faces we all wear. Now, if you know Sylvia Plath, she's kind of a bleak uh, poet. And that is kind of bleak. But there's also truth in there, isn't there? I mean, honestly, how, how would we respond to some of those questions uh, asked by the Chicago Brain Laboratory? How would we respond to someone asking us if, if there are times whether we feel isolated or alone or whether we have someone to really connect with? How would the people on our street, the, the elderly people on our street or, or perhaps the new immigrant or those that are new to the neighborhood, how, how would they respond? How would any of us respond to the question of whether or not we feel truly lonely at times? I think not many of us would say that we have a lot of true, deep, lasting connections. And yet, we know instinctively, intuitively, that what God said back in Genesis chapter 2 is true. That it's not good for us to be alone. There's not many of us who want to be alone. We, we long for some sense of connection. So the question is, well, why are we alone? Why is it so difficult for us to, to have these kind of lasting and deep connections? Well, in our day, some of it clearly is technology. I mean, we just know that it's harder to connect with people. We don't have as many face-to-face -face conversations. Some of it probably also has to do with our own cultures uh, really lifting up, kind of idolizing uh, individualism. We're, we're told from a young age, you know, if you want a good life, what you need to do is figure out yourself. Figure out your passions, figure out your desires. If you figure out, you know, what makes you tick, then you will find joy and happiness. There's not much emphasis on a wider community. But there is something deeper I think also that makes it difficult for us to really connect with the people around us. Stephanie Cacciapo, who's a neuroscientist at that brain laboratory, she talks about loneliness and identifies some of the, the inner workings of it. She says this, loneliness increases both a desire to connect with others, which, which that makes sense, we want to connect with others, but also a gut instinct for self-preservation. Loneliness says, if I let you get too close to me, you're only going to hurt me. And so the people who are starting to experience loneliness uh, tend to become more wary, more, more cautious, more self-centered. And, and if you know anything about the, what happened in the Garden of Eden, all of that should sound very familiar. Because see, in the Garden of Eden, when God created uh, people, Adam and Eve, there was at the beginning perfect relationship. I mean, they, they, were, they knew each other intimately. They knew God intimately. It wasn't just that it was warm and tropical and, and wonderful. There was a real sense in which they belonged. If you had gone to Adam and Eve back then and given them those questions from the Brain Institute, you know, how often do you feel isolated or alone? Or how often do you feel kind of misunderstood? Their, their answers would have been, I've never felt that way. I've, I've never, ever felt that I don't belong. I've never, ever felt put out or misunderstood or betrayed. I mean, just think of that for a moment. Imagine a life 
where you are known intimately. You're able to be completely vulnerable. You're not ashamed. You're not scared. You know the people in your life and they know you perfectly and you love them perfectly. And you have that same kind of relationship with God himself. That was part of the beauty and the perfection of the Garden of Eden. But sadly, it didn't last. Again, if you know the story, you know it it didn't last because there was a tree in the garden and God told the people there, Adam and Eve, that that tree was forbidden. The fruit was forbidden. And if that, they would eat of it, that they would die. And despite all of the intimacy and connection and the, the wonderfulness of that place, they ate the fruit. They committed the first sin. But, but actually, the fruit wasn't really the issue, really, right? The, the first sin was committed in their minds and their hearts when they decided, you know what? I'm not going to listen to God. I'm going to listen to my own wisdom. I'm going to go my way. And in that moment, the essence of sin then meant that they were separated from God. It's not just that the consequences of sin is death forever. It is. That's what God promised. But also, it impacts and infects every aspect of our existence. We see that. With Adam and Eve, we see what happens. Because immediately after they, they eat of the fruit, they begin to feel ashamed. And they draw away from God and from each other. Take a look at verse 8. This is where God comes to, to find them and, uh, and we see the difference. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So there for the first time, they, they felt scared, they felt vulnerable, they felt ashamed. They separated themselves, went in, in, into hiding. Their relationship with God was clearly fractured and broken. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that they were driven away from the Lord. They were also driven away from each other. If you look at the way that Adam responds when God begins to ask him, like, what what happened here, Adam? Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. God says, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. There for the first time, not the last, a husband went against his wife, took an opposing side, laid blame, And we see that happen again and again. Then uh, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and God sends them all out of the Garden of Eden. The separation that they experienced was a direct result of their sin. You see a huge contrast between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Genesis 2, everyone is at ease with each other. Everyone is known by each other. There's no fear, there's no worry, there's no shame. They know each other perfectly. They have perfect relationship. In Genesis 3, everyone is estranged from each other. Everything has fallen apart. If you were to ask them those questions from the brain laboratory, the very next day, do you ever feel isolated? Do you ever feel alone? Their answer would have completely changed. They would have said for the first time, I do. I do do feel alone. And the sad part of it is that it didn't just stay with them. That the impact and effects of sin was passed down through all human generations all the way up to this present day. Now all of us have experienced that sense of brokenness and all of us now struggle to really connect with the people around us. We no longer have the relationship with the Lord that we used to and we don't have a relationship with each other the way that we would want to. This hasn't stopped us from trying though. I mean... You would probably say at this point, you know, Matt, I, I sort of, I'm tracking with you, but there are communities, aren't there, in the world? There are relationships that we have. Well, let's turn the corner to, to the second part of the sermon and look at 
uh, belongings that disappoint. See, it is true that we are not all hermits or lighthouse keepers, right? There are people in our lives. That's one of the defining characteristics of humanity. Everywhere you go, all over the globe, there's, there's tribes and families and communities and towns and nations. We, we gather together, not just into those communities we were born into, but even in communities that we, we create for ourselves. Those things that we enjoy, we tend to have a community that develops around them. Uh, sports is a good example of this, and I want to read you a quote from a, a novelist, John Green. He says this, he says, human beings need games. We've created them over and over again throughout our history, but more to the point, I think we need communities, which sports are actually pretty good at creating. And that's true. In fact, there's a good example that he cites uh, from a football team in Britain, in, in England, and I want to preface this by saying I had a guy from England in our first gathering. I'm going to tell you a story of Wimbledon, which is a small little area and football club, and he came up to me and said, that's a horrible team. You have to get a different example. You have to use Chelsea. And I said, I'm sorry, this, it just works with this one, so I apologize in advance. If you have a favorite football club, this is going to be Wimbledon because their story is pretty compelling. So their uh, little community and their football team has existed. It's soccer football, just in case we're all tracking. Um, since 1912, they've been around. That's a lot of years of football, a lot of years of soccer, and they've all gathered together all the time again and again. There's a real community that has developed. In fact, one fan said this uh, to John Green, and they were in conversation. He said this, For the last 40 years, my father has sat next to the same people at Plow Lane Stadium every other Saturday, where, that's where Wimbledon plays. And for a couple of hours, they would collectively turn their attention away from themselves to something bigger. More than that, he said the Wimbledon fans, when one of them has a hard time, the others come around them and help them out. More than that, when... When there's a need in the community, the Wimbledon fans, they gather together. They raise money. They, they do charity work. This is a real and vibrant community. It sounds like the kind of place that you would like to be a part of. There's people really caring for each other. And not only that, there's a connection with something greater. You notice the two things. The two things that we, we saw back in the Garden of Eden. That there was real human relationship, a depth of knowledge, not just sitting there watching a game. They actually are in each other's lives, caring for each other, helping each other, that horizontal relationship, and there's a relationship with something greater than themselves, the team. It's hard for us to remember, I know here in Vancouver, but to have a team that can win very often, <laughs> that we get excited about, right? Like that, that's an exciting thing. That's something we all get behind. We, we, that brings us together, and that's what they have in, in Wimbledon. See, those are really the things that we long for in community, and we do seek to replicate them. And very often, we can find a real sense of meaning and purpose and connection with the people around us, regardless of what we're into. Online communities, uh, we have a community center down, down the way. We just built here in Polk Coquitlam because there's a high value placed on community. They want people to come together to play ringette, to play hockey, to, to take out books. It's... It's encouraged because we all recognize this is a good thing. But the problem, the problem is that those communities that we create, they can never fully satisfy our desire to belong because, because in the end, all of our earthly communities will in some way disappoint us. And AFC Wimbledon is, is actually an example of that. See, this, this, this football club, they, they had been meeting in the same stadium for years that the emotional equilibrium of the whole community was based on whether they win or lose. And even when they lost, they still found joy in complaining about how they lost and the referees, right? They were, it was great. You know that feeling. 
For decades, this went on. And then the unthinkable happened. In 1991, they sold the stadium. And the local football association decided to move the team 60 miles north. It was devastating to the community. There was, there was like weeping and moaning in the streets. There was protests. There, there was marches. They, they couldn't believe this had happened. That same fan who talked about her, her father said this, you have to understand that when they took away our stadium, it was like they took away our church. Like that was the center of who we were as a people. And now it was gone. Well, because they loved football so much, they decided to, to bake another team. Right? They hired a coach. The fans came together. They, they, they hired players. They found a, a field that they could you know, share with another team. And they decided to put their team back together. It used to be called FC Wimbledon. Now it's AFC Wimbledon. But it wasn't the same. In fact, before long, someone wrote a song for the fans to sing. And the song was called The Road to Plow Lane. You can see the field. That was the field that was sold. It was, it was pretty much junk, by the way. Like it was a fire hazard. That, the stands there were, um, they, they sold it for a good reason. But the, the fans, they, their heart was tied up in it. And so they sing this song now. You can go on YouTube and hear the, the fans of Wimbledon singing this song. It's called Show Me the Way to Plow Lane. And the lines start this way. Show me the way to plow lane. I'm tired and I want to go home. Their hearts are heavy. I know it's hard to imagine that level of emotional investment, but, but really what they're saying is that we're, we're not satisfied yet. There's something that's missing. And the reality is that when it comes to our communities that we create, there's always something missing. There is always some way in which, which we're disappointed because eventually things always break down. Maybe it's some circumstances, like a stadium being sold or something falling apart or you move away from someone or maybe the people in your community, they do something to betray you. Maybe your friendships you thought were so strong, it falls apart. Maybe you do something and you feel as if you've failed the people that you're in close contact with. You feel like you no longer belong. See, all of this gives us a, a deep sense of, of loneliness, of no, of no longer belonging. We know this feeling. It's the feeling of betrayed friendships, broken families, failed businesses even, of being misunderstood. And the thing is that in our day, now this loneliness feels even more lonely than it has ever before. In a book called The Biography of Loneliness, the author Faye-bound Alberti, she writes this, before the modern era, nobody was ever truly alone because the idea of God was there. But now, of course, we have not only rejected God himself, but even the idea of God. What that means then is when our communities disappoint us, like when our, when our friendships falter or when we outlive all those who really know us, we aren't just alone, we're utterly alone. We find ourselves longing to belong even more so. Now, if this was all that we had, we would be in a real desperate state as human beings. But thankfully, thankfully, even though we rejected God, that was not his final answer, was to cast us out. In fact, what we find in the Bible is that, that God's love for us surpassed even our rejection of him. And that his desire was to bring us back into community with himself. So we're going to turn the final corner to the third part of the sermon. Belonging that satisfies. Uh, you may not realize this, but the entire Bible really is a story of God bringing us back into community with himself. Very soon after Genesis, the, the fall into sin, God creates a new community of faith, 
a new, the, the people of God. And they have a bunch of different names. They're Israelites, they're Hebrews, they're Jews. And what God does is really everything that you'd think would be necessary to form a, a vibrant and lasting and meaningful community. I mean, he, he does amazing things for these people. He saves them from slavery. He protects them against enemies. He gives them uh, rules for their community, the best way to live. He reveals himself in power. He comes down and actually lives among them. It, it's amazing. It's fantastic. And, and you would think, again, man, this is, this is what we need. This is what we need to reclaim what was lost. But actually, when you read the Old Testament, what you find is that that community keeps falling apart again and again and again. That the people themselves, even though God reveals his love and his grace and his power, they keep rejecting him. They keep forgetting him. They keep falling back into sin again and again. And everything falls apart. They hurt each other. They abandon God. Enemies come and overtake them. The reality is that the sin that wrecked everything in the first place kept wrecking things. There's a little book uh, in the Old Testament uh, called Lamentations. It's not really a happy book. Um, but it's written at a time when all of this kind of comes to a head. When God's people have rejected him, the community's fallen apart. In fact, uh, the enemies of, of God's people, the Babylonians, have come in, they've conquered Jerusalem, and they've taken people off into exile. So literally, the community of people has been torn apart. And there's a prophet that writes this, this book of lament, and here's the first lines of Lamentations 1.1, talking about the city of Jerusalem. It says, How lonely sits that, the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations, she who was to become a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. See, it's a picture of the effects of sin. It's the picture of, of how selfishness ruins everything and, and how the people were separated from their God and from each other. And the truth is that we can still see these effects in our lives today, can't we? Hasn't there been someone in your life that's had a really good relationship? And, and you've said to the man, you gotta, you gotta do whatever you can to keep this relationship. And then they've done something stupid, something selfish, something horrible. And, and you've even warned them, look, don't wreck this. You're gonna wreck this. And they don't listen. And then afterwards they say, oh, I should have listened to you. She was the one, she was perfect. He was fantastic. And they ruin it. Haven't we hurt the people in our lives that we say we love the most? We, we say they're, they're the most important people to us, and yet we, we have this inability to really love them well. We see these effects, this, this separation, this brokenness, this estrangement. And it's all not because of something that's outside of us, even though we'd like to believe that. It's because of what's in us. It's because we have a, a, a bent towards selfishness towards a lack of love, towards putting ourselves first. See, the good news for us, the good news for, for everyone all over the whole earth is that God's answer for our longing to belong, our longing for relationship is actually not in us. It's not in our ability to create a new community or new relationships. It's really rooted in God's love for us. God's power to bring about a renewed sense of intimacy with him. See, God knew that really the thing that needed to be figured out is, is something in us, our own heart, that's broken and corrupted by sin. So he did the only thing that, that could be done, that needed to be done, which was to send his own son, Jesus, to deal with our sin problem. And that was dealt with on the cross. Now, the cross, if you know the story, 
uh, is mainly about one thing that Jesus did, and that is that he died for us. That's the Easter story, that he, he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross because the penalty for sin that was told way back in Genesis is death. And so Jesus took our death on himself and then was raised to new life. But there's some other things that were happening on the cross that we sometimes forget. I want to point us to one of them. This is, uh, he says something. Jesus doesn't say many things while he's on the cross, but he says this one thing here that is very helpful and kind of gives us a window into exactly what he's doing for us. This is Matthew 15, verses 33. And when the sixth hour came, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And you might wonder, what does it mean that Jesus says, God, you have forsaken me? What it means is that for the first time in his existence, Jesus, God the Son and God the Father were separated from each other. What it means is that for the, for the first time, Jesus experienced a sense of loneliness. That, that for the first time, he didn't belong. That he, in fact, took on all of our rejection and isolation and loneliness on himself so that we would not have to experience that forevermore. Part of the atonement, part of his work on the cross was to repair the relationship between us and God. And to do that, he experienced all of the lack of belonging that, that we still are afflicted by. Now, you see the resolution to this because when Jesus went back up to heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father. It, the relationship was restored. His new life and, and restoration, they, they point the forward, point the way forward for us. The reality is that we can find real and lasting relationship with God himself, not because of our own strength, not because of our own power, but because Jesus has paved the way for us. See, the, the beauty of this new relationship, the beauty of this new community is that it is eternal, that it's rooted in the power of God and not in us. In fact, we see this time and again through the New Testament, which is writing all about this, this newfound faith that people have because of the work of Christ, and so I want to read to you from Romans 8, speaking about now the way in which um, this new relationship that we have. Verse 38 says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see the difference there. There is no way in which this newfound community with God can be disappointing to us because it will last forever. It's not rooted in our strength, our ability to still be loving and, and to be a good friend or to be a good son or daughter or husband or wife. It is rooted in God's affectionate and sacrificial love to bring us back into union. There's language in the Bible that talks about us now being adopted, brought into the family of God even though we rejected him. So what this means then, what this means for us as human beings is that when we come to faith in Christ, even when we feel alone, and there will be times when we feel alone, coming to Jesus doesn't mean that your life always has rose-colored glasses on and there's never any difficulties, but what it means is that in those difficult times, we have a real answer to our longing for belonging and relationship. And it's not just in the idea of God, it's in God himself. It's in the truth that God has expressed very clearly 
his, how he feels about us. He didn't just whisper that, I love you. He shouted, I love you. On the cross, he shouted, proclaimed to the entire universe, you, I, lo- I love you, regardless of what you feel about yourself, regardless of what other people are saying about you, regardless of the voices in your head that say you're worthless, that you're not worth anything, that no one could love you. God is saying, I, I love you. I want you to be near to me, and I've done everything possible so that you would know this and so that you would experience this. That is the hope of the Bible. That is really the whole point of the Bible, that we would know that God still loves us in spite of our sin. Now, even just saying it, it, it makes, it's a bit in, intangible, isn't it? To speak about the love of God, you're like, that sounds great, but I don't know what that actually looks like. How do, how do I feel that? So to help us kind of grapple with this and, and grasp it, Uh, I want to give you an earthly picture of this kind of love, this really unconditional, sacrificial love. And for that, we're going to look to uh, a family called the the Solomon family, in particular to the mother and the son. This is Heidi and Daniel Solomon. Uh, Heidi was married to Rick, and they had it in their hearts to adopt. So in fact, uh, Heidi and Rick are from uh, the U.S., and Daniel was born in Romania. Uh, for the first seven years of Daniel's life, uh, he, he spent it in an orphanage in Romania, which means that for Daniel, uh, his entire world was uh, a crib. Up to the age of seven years old, apart from when he ate or when he went to the bathroom, he would be in a crib with another boy. And as he speaks about you know, the experience back then, it's a little hazy for him. Uh, and people would ask him, you know, did you, did you want a family? Did you wish that you had a mom and dad? And his response was, well, that would be like asking a child who's never tasted chocolate if you want some chocolate. He said, I, I just didn't know what that was. When he was adopted, everything began fantastically. He was brought to the U.S. He was excited for all the new experiences, all the attention for six months. Things were fantastic. But then it was Daniel's birthday. And they had a birthday party for him, and it was in March. And, and Daniel said to them, we didn't have March in Romania because I've never had a birthday before. And what happened for Daniel is he began to realize that there was this huge part of his life, the first part of his life where he, there were a whole bunch of things he didn't experience that was missing. And an anger began to grow up in Daniel, an anger and a confusion, because at first what he thought was that Rick and Heidi, they were his real parents, and that they had left him in Romania for seven years and hadn't come to get him. And he became very, very angry. And even when they finally explained to him, look, there's a difference between your biological parents and your adoptive parents, even though that was clear, the anger overtook him. He was enraged. And there was only one person, really, that he had to take it out on, and that was Heidi. He became verbally abusive, physically abusive. They had to take all the furniture out of his room and leave just a mattress because he would take everything and throw it against the wall, put holes in the drywall. He would attack his mother. He would give her black eyes. He would punch her. He would kick her. They had to call the police time and again. They had to hire someone to be in the home with him to protect Heidi because they were afraid of what Daniel might do. Their marriage was suffering. Everything was falling apart. And there was a time when the social worker sat down with Heidi and said, listen, here's how this is going to go. Daniel is going to end up uh, in juvie. You're going to end up in the hospital and your marriage is going to be done. And Heidi's response was, so we've hit rock bottom, have we? How do we go up from here? See, Heidi's commitment to her son meant that regardless of everything that she experienced, she was committed to still loving him. People would ask her, how can you love someone who is diagnosed as partially homicidal? And her, her answer was, he's my son. 
Of course, I'm going to love him. I have to love him. And her commitment to loving him meant that they pursued all manner of treatment to help Daniel deal with his issues. And the main issue that he had that he was diagnosed with was an attachment disorder, which is a a disorder which really means that a human being has difficulty attaching with someone else, which isn't surprising because he was never taught how to love or how to have empathy or anything like that. Heidi's commitment was that she she wanted to be able to teach Daniel to be able to to love or to at least be more soft-hearted. So they found a few different treatment options, kind of extreme. The one treatment that she did, there was a doctor who said, what needs to happen here is that there needs to be a bond that develops between mother and son. It never was there for Daniel. He doesn't know how to do this. So what he prescribed was that they would be together I mean like three feet apart from each other all the time, apart from when they're going to the bathroom or asleep uh, for months. So Heidi quit her job. Daniel stopped going to school and for eight weeks, they they were just together the whole time. And the other part of it was that they had to look each other in the eye. That Daniel was required to look each other in the eye whenever they were interacting. And you can imagine Daniel hated this. Of course, it sounds really uncomfortable, doesn't it? He hated it. He didn't like it at all. But an interesting thing happened. As he tells the story, he said, about three weeks in of all this thing, because there were, it's kind of funny, there were, there were consequences. If he didn't do it, the consequence was not a timeout, but a time in, they called it. So if he didn't do the thing, if he didn't look her in the eye, then the consequence was that they would sit on the couch and she would hug him. <laughs> because he, he, he would prefer to be alone. And that was the whole thing. No, you're not alone. You're in relationship with someone. So after three weeks, Daniel says this. He said, you know, after three weeks... I think I started to hate her a little bit less. He said, before, whenever she would say anything to me, I would go in my room, I would hate her, I would hate her, I'd hate her, but now she was always around. And so I began to kind of like her a little bit. After eight weeks of this, uh, the violent behavior was gone. It was was a miracle. They, They were so thankful, but there were other behaviors that persisted. He began to steal. He began to act out. He ended up in, in jail for a period of time. And so they, they tried to find other treatment. The next treatment they, they, they went into took a year. And the prescription was this. Every night, every night you are to hold Daniel for 20 minutes like a baby in your arms. Now keep in mind, Daniel was 13 years old by this point. He was bigger than his mom. So what they would do, they would do this. Uh, Heidi and Rick, they would sit on the couch and hold him and they would feed him ice cream. It's the only way that he would stay there. He also hated this, right? Super awkward, really uncomfortable, you can imagine. But again, something amazing happens. At some point during the ice cream feeding and every day, day in, day out, Daniel began to talk. He began to share. He began to talk about the things that were going on inside him and the things that had happened to him in Romania. And no one knows when, but at some point during that year, Daniel began to soften. He began to to help out around the house. They could move the furniture back into his room. He began to kind of make friends with some of the kids at school. He got to the point where he was able to say that he loved his parents. You see why I'm telling you this story, right? Because the only way to connect with this hard-hearted young boy was to show him a love that wasn't superficial, it wasn't just words, it was sacrificial. She was willing to sacrifice everything for her son so that he might experience the love that he could, his heart was too hard. Do you see how that's like us? Apart from God? We turn our back on him, we don't want anything to do with him, and yet we try to to hold things together, it never works, and God's answer is, look, you don't know how to love. 
You need to experience the sacrificial love of Christ who gave everything for you to the point of death so that you would know what love looks like. See, that's God's real answer when it comes to a sense of belonging for each human being. Not that we would figure it out on our own, not that we would we'd try to you know, put together some relationships, but that we would be transformed by the genuine love of Christ as we come to faith, come to believe who he is and what he's done for us. I want us to remember where we started. We started way back in Genesis 2, where God said, it is not good that we should be alone, and that is the truth. It's not good that we should be alone. It's good that we would be loved and be loving to the people in our lives, but that, only, that will only really happen when we know the love of God. And so my hope for all of us here is that for those who know the Lord already, that, that you would be filled with a sense of gratitude, a sense of joy that you have been loved this way and that you would look for even more opportunities to show this kind of love to the people around you, especially those people who are difficult to love. And for those who don't yet know the Lord, my hope is you see, you see the love of God. You see the extent to which Jesus went to bring you into community with himself. And that you would come to the point of faith. And, and look, if you have questions about that, man, we'd love to answer that. Love to talk with you after. But really all it takes is a prayer. Just talking to the Lord, saying, look, I, I know I need you. I pray that you would help me to see you and understand you more and more. And allow the love of God in Christ Jesus to flood you and change you. So, let's pray together. And then we will respond to the teaching of God's word. Lord God, I am struck again and again by the depth of your love and the hardness of our own hearts. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. Thankful that you did not leave us to our own devices, leave us just to go off on our own, rejecting you and trying to figure things out on our own. I thank you that you pursued us, that you, you went after us, even when we didn't even want help. You, you, you push your way into our lives with an overwhelming sense of love and mercy and grace and the promise that when we come to faith that we will not just know you for a moment, we will know you for all eternity. I pray, Lord, for all of us here. Would you help us to come to a greater and deeper understanding of the love of Jesus? And would you also transform us to be a people that are genuinely loving, that we would be community here at Tri-City Church that would genuinely love each other well, know each other well, and love a community around us. God, I pray that for each one we would come to a greater understanding of what it means to have faith and what it means to know you truly. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.